from understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till. She makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome to For What It's Worth. I'm your host, Rabina Ahmed Haq. I hope you will join us for the next hour. We will be talking all things personal finance. All the stories ahead are going to help you save some money, make some better decisions as consumers. We've got a really exciting show set up for you today. We're talking about a new term that's out there called skimpflation. Emphasis on the skimp. We've all heard about shrinkflation, right? When you go to a store and an item that you've bought for years, all of a sudden you notice, hey, why is there eight cookies rather than the 10 cookies that I'm used to, right? We've all had this experience. And sometimes we don't notice until someone points it out because we're just so used to on autopilot buying that same thing over and over again that we don't really take a look at how much quantity we're getting. We're just sort of buying it thinking, oh, it hasn't gone up in price. Let's grab it. But in reality, company's putting less stuff in there. So it's not that. It's not shrinkflation. This is skimpflation. And I think in some ways this is sneakier than shrinkflation. Skimpflation is when a company decides to uh, take some expensive ingredients out of a product and maybe replace it with cheaper ingredients. So margarine rather than butter, increase the water content, but still give you that same product on the shelf. There's nothing illegal about that. You could be buying the same cookies for the last 10 years and they could change the ingredients on you and they don't have to tell you. So it does feel like they're trying to dupe customers into buying a product that is no longer what they are used to, especially if that product has been popular for many, many years. You know, from my point of view, if you change the ingredients in a product and it's been like that for decades, you need to let people know so they know what they're consuming. Because in some cases... They may not want to consume that new ingredient you've replaced an old ingredient with, or maybe they don't want to pay for a product that is not as high quality as it was in the past. The other way you may see skimpflation is in stores. So I was at a uh, furniture store on the weekend buying a coffee table, which I did purchase. And at a furniture store, you really do need a salesperson. I mean, you can't really do much just walking around outside of just looking at stuff, which is great. But when you want to buy something, you need a salesperson. You can't take it to the counter and cash out. There's absolutely no self-checkout at furniture stores. There was two salespeople in this massive store that were helping about 20 people. And so you can imagine how frustrating it was for us as, as customers, them as salespeople. One woman, uh, one lady, one lady salesperson there was already tied up with a very I guess, high maintenance customer. So the other salesperson was taking care of everybody, taking care of the rest of the 18 of us, while this one person sort of got all the attention from one of the other salespeople. So these things, you know, happen where sometimes you'll go and it'll be busier than normal. But if they had had two or three, if they had had two or three more salespersons on the floor, I think we would have had a different experience. I did get what I needed. I was able to find it. In fact, in some ways, I like the fact that I was left alone for a little while. Uh, but I do think that we are going to see more and more of this skimpflation, a loss of quality of service, loss of quality of product. And it's only when someone points it out or when it's obvious 
the way it was obvious to me that we do notice. Quickly, before we go to break, I wanted to talk about inflation numbers this week. They came out uh, for the month of September. Inflation has slowed to 3.8%. And this is good news because we did see inflation spike up in August to 4%. So it's coming down. Now, the report shows that the main reason that inflation remains high is because of mortgage interest costs, rent, which I think those go hand in hand, right? Rent and mortgage interest costs, food purchased from restaurants, not necessarily from grocery stores, gasoline and electricity. So our utility bills are a little bit higher. And so is the cost of running our home. So we're still paying quite a lot for shelter costs, which most of us can't avoid, right? Most of us have to pay our mortgage, our rent. We have to pay our gas bill. We have to get all those things sorted every single month. Uh, but what has come down in price, which I think is positive, is grocery prices. Grocery prices year over year are 5.8% higher. That's down from 6.9% in August right? So they're going in the right direction. And that does reflect that it's getting a little bit easier for us to grocery shop. I have noticed that some of the sales are back. Some of the sales, chicken, whole chicken. My neighbor just texted me $1.99 a pound at our local grocery store. So I will be going there tonight and stocking up on whole chickens because Rubina loves making roast chicken. Ask anybody in my life. So that's one thing that, you know, chicken can be very expensive. Um, and you know, one ninety nine a pound is about as cheap as I've seen it in a long, long time. We have a fantastic show coming up. We are going to talk about skimpflation, but we're also going to talk about the popularity or the increased popularity of private lending. So these are mortgages that people get from private sources. Why are they getting more popular and what are some of the risks involved in taking one out? All of that. When we come back after the break, I'm Rubina Ahmad Huck. This is for what it's worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Hawk. It's called Skimpflation. The term is used to describe declining quality in a service or a product. It's a way for companies to quietly cut costs without making it obvious to consumers. With the cost of doing business rising, more companies are participating in skimpflation. To talk about this, we are joined by Jeff Doucette. He is with Field Agent Canada, an online company that uses mystery shoppers and their smartphones to gather data that helps retailers succeed. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rubina. How are you? Good. I first wanted to start. Have I properly described what Field Agent does? Uh, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't incorrectly describing you. Yeah, no, you you did a pretty good job. Uh, Field Agent, uh, we have a smartphone app that um, Canadians can download and we offer them small tasks that they can complete, uh, whether they're grocery shopping or at a restaurant or even at home. And we pay them cash to complete those tasks and surveys. And that's how we help retailers and brands uh, stay on top of what consumers want. Amazing. Um, one thing that retailers and brands are doing is participating in skimpflation. Can you tell us from your point of view, what does skimpflation mean? Yeah, again, I think you did a pretty good job of summing it up, but really it's um, one of the tactics that uh, businesses can take um, to 
ensure that their products are not too expensive for consumers to buy and that the quality of the product doesn't suffer in the meantime. And um, typically, you know, I think a lot of skinflation happens and people don't notice it, but when it doesn't work or when there is a difference in quality of product or service, that's when consumers are noticing it. And I think because more and more companies are doing it today, um, that's why we're seeing more instances of people picking up on skinflation happening in their day-to-day -day lives. Give us a, a, a real example of what skimflation is and how we may recognize uh, that that's happening with the product or the service that we're using. Yeah, uh, skimflation is kind of all around us. Um, I think, you know, I do a lot of work in the food industry. And, um, you know, of course, the price of ingredients for making food products has gone up a lot over the last couple of years. Uh, some ingredients have doubled or tripled. And so what we really see is retailers or, and brands saying, what can I swap out of my ingredients that is uh, less expensive, that allows me to maintain my price of my product at a certain price on the grocery shelf, um, but doesn't affect the quality of the product. And there's a lot of tinkering that goes on there, um, but it could be as simple as swapping a, uh, an expensive ingredient for a less expensive ingredient or it could be swapping in water in place of other things that are um, in the ingredients. So, you know, when we see consumers reacting to skinflation, it's often because the brand has not been able to maintain their quality of their product while cutting back the ingredients and people pick up on that. And it might not look like it right from the get-go. It could be after you've made a recipe and your cake doesn't turn out the way it always has for the last 20 years, that you might be noticing the impact of skimflation and an uh, ingredient swap happening inside of a food product. Yeah, we've all experienced that where we use something for years and then one day we pick it up and bring it home and it tastes different, looks different, but we can't put our finger on it because it it kind of it kind of doesn't it's not different enough to actually notice what has changed, but we know something has. Um, is, is this happening more and more um, because of inflation, or is this something that's been going on for 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 decades uh, as companies try to save money? Yeah, it's been happening. Yeah, it's been happening for decades. Um, it happens for different reasons too. You know, the, uh, companies are constantly tweaking their formulas. Um, I remember when I worked for a big food company in the early 2000s, there was a big push to what was called an, a clean ingredient declaration. So they were trying to take out as many of the unpronounceables as possible um, without changing the quality of the product. So it happens for those reasons as well. But primary, it's it's uh, really about inflation, um, and it might not even necessarily be that the cost of ingredients in the product are going up in general, but if they can save money there, that helps them make up for the increased labor costs, maybe under a new labor agreement, they're going to do that. You know, At the end of the day, those companies are responsible to shareholders and delivering a profit, and they have to do what they can to um, maintain their margins as much as possible. So what can a consumer do to protect themselves if they, you know, if they have noticed that a product has changed, but they can't tell in which way, uh, if they've noticed that the quality of something has gone down, but they can't pinpoint where, uh, what can consumers do to protect themselves from this kind of change in service or, or product that they've been used to? Yeah, you know, there, there isn't really sort of a, a legal 
protection in that space. Um, as long as the ingredients are declared correctly on a product, then there's no kind of no harm, no foul in the eye of the of the you know uh, food can or health Canada. Um, but you know, keeping an eye on that ingredient declaration is really important. Um, typically, if you see less expensive things like water move up in the order of the uh, uh, ingredient package or ingredients on the package, that's a good indication that there, there's some shrinkflation going on and the quality might be changing um, because it's never like you open up a package and it used to be orange and now it's green. It's All of these things are very subtle um, because the brands don't want to make dramatic changes um, to formulas that people have been loyal to for a long, long time. Um, and then the other thing that, you know, if you do notice um, that this is happening or the quality of a product is changing, um, you know, reaching out to the um, customer inquiries lines, the 1-800 numbers on the back of packaging, um, and, you know, have your voice heard. Those um, complaints or comments don't go into a, a black hole. They actually go to the people who are managing the brands and managing the product development and enough of that feedback can maybe push brands to uh, say, hey, we've gone too far here. We're going to you know, take our formula back to where it was because we're at risk of losing uh, shoppers uh, because of this change that we made. Yeah, I mean, loyalty is huge, obviously, to companies. And if you become disloyal to, to a product or brand, uh, that's when you're more likely to talk about it, right? If you go to a, a restaurant that you frequented, you know, for 10 years, and all of a sudden, the portions are smaller, you're going to tell everybody you meet about that experience because you're you're almost taken aback by how dramatically something has changed and how what you expected to be happening is not happening. I think that leaves more of a mark in our memory uh, than just not liking something and sort of just never buying it uh, buying it again. And that is one of the the the. Um, the risks that brands take when they when they uh, participate in skimpflation. Is there anything else that you can think about that, uh, you know, when, if a brand is, or a company is thinking, okay, we're going to try to save money by, you know, increasing the water or changing this ingredient, what what should they keep in mind, what they, what they risk when they do that? Yeah, well, it's definitely that loyalty. Um, you know, one of the first things they teach you in business school is that it's way more expensive to recruit a new consumer to your company than it is to keep an existing one. Um, and so th that's sort of a very fundamental piece. Um, you did touch on one thing there that was, um, you know, package size shrinking or serving serving size shrinking. That's more called um, shrinkflation. Um, and again, there's lots of examples of that out in the marketplace of, you know, the ice cream that used to be two liters that is now 1.66 liters for the same price. Um, but, you know, the, the brand team has a lot uh, of levers to pull, um, including actually just taking the price up. And, you know, that has to be the trade-off is, you know, if we're going to make this change to the product, the the quality is going to suffer. People will notice. What is the lesser of two evils? Is it um, better to change the product and risk alienating loyal consumers? Or does it make more sense to increase the price of the product by 30 cents? And maybe that puts the product out of range of some consumers. And so that's really the seesaw sort of trade-off that, that manufacturers are doing with their products. And it's also the same thing that airlines are doing with the services they offer and hotels are, are are doing the same thing 
they're they're really trying to stay in the sweet spot where the loyal consumers stay loyal to them and prices don't get too far out of line that they become too expensive for the masses. We're speaking to Jeff Doucette. He's with Field Agent Canada about skimpflation. It's a mouthful, skimpflation. Um, are we going to see more of that going forward as the cost of business continues to go up and uh, it just gets more expensive to put those same products on the shelves and same services on the floor? Yeah. And and again, it might not actually relate to the product itself um, or the ingredients of a product. Um, the things that kind of concern me, to be honest, is um, some of the new labor contracts that we've seen, for instance, in the marketplace. Um, you know, I, I think uh, the trade unions have been really successful in negotiating um, packages for their, their team members. But, you know, in the U.S., for instance, there's UPS drivers that are, will be making the equivalent of $150,000. That is, is a huge change to the cost model of a business. And, you know, if your cost of labor goes up, then how else can you uh, save money to maintain your overall business margins? And, and so, you know, I think with inflation starting to cool off, uh, you know, the numbers this week have been pretty good. Um, you know, we'll see, it won't be as prevalent, um, but there's only so far that you can go with skimflation before it becomes really, really obvious. Um, and so you can only pull that lever so many times before you might reach the point of no return as a brand. And that's a really dangerous place to be. It absolutely is. And I think that brands and companies are doing everything they can to save money so they can continue to serve their clients and uh, and, and their customers. Uh, but like everybody else, uh, they're trying to cut back in ways that... Um, that ways that people don't notice. So they continue to keep those uh, people happy. Thank you so much, Jeff, for making time for us today, uh, talking about skimpflation, because I think it's a term that not many people are familiar with. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much. That's Jeff Doucette. He is with Field Agent Canada. Uh, skimpflation is similar, but not like shrinkflation, which we've talked a lot about on this program, where you go and the same bag of potato chips that was 350 grams is now 320 grams. And until you really look at the numbers, and if you have an old bag lying around and do the comparison, it's sometimes hard to tell that those bags have, have, have got smaller. Usually it's social media. Someone will post it and you say, wow, that is true. And then you'll go and check your old stock and realize, you know, that item has gotten smaller since the last time you purchased it, if you still have it on your shelf. But it is a sign of the times. It's what's happening with the economy where companies are trying to save money, trying to do it in a way that doesn't offend their customers. Uh, but the problem is, is that you risk with skimpflation, uh, especially when quality goes down, you risk losing that customer because that may be the only reason that they were loyal to you to begin with. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking about private mortgages. They are a multi-billion dollar industry, but they carry a lot of risk. I have the co-founder of RateHub on next to talk about what you need to know before you opt to sign up for a private mortgage. I'm Rubina Ahmad Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Huck. Private mortgages in Canada are becoming increasingly popular as home buyers look for alternative ways to fund their purchase. 
for example, according to data from the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario, the proportion of all brokered mortgages taken out through private lenders has grown from 8.4% in 2014 to 11.7% just last year in that province alone. But experts say that private lending comes with higher than normal interest rates and carries long-term financial risk. To talk about private lending, we are joined by James Laird. He is the co-founder of RateHub and the president of CanWise Mortgage Lenders. Hi, James. Welcome to the program. Hi. James, what is a private mortgage? I think most people are aware that these exist, but I don't think most of us know how they actually work. Yeah, so most people uh, are used to you know, getting a mortgage from, you know, a prime lender or an alternative lender. So these are, these are our big banks, credit unions, trust companies. These are the institutions that uh, lend money in Canada. So that's what, where most people get mortgages from, you know, more than 90% of mortgages in Canada are considered prime, meaning that you can qualify uh, for the underwriting criteria that makes you a prime mortgage. So that's what um, most mortgages are in Canada. Then there's there's a, a, a section that uh, we call them alternative so or near prime. And this is you're very close to fitting that prime box. Um, and we're talking, you know, credit score, down payment and income is how we qualify for mortgage in Canada, of course. So there's the, the near prime or subprime, and that's still institutional regulated, um, you know, from big companies. Uh, and then the next step and the last step that makes up the, mortgage lending environment in Canada is called private lending. And so this is, you know, very fragmented. It's a private mortgage simply means that um, on one hand, you have a borrower who uh, cannot qualify for those first two types. Uh, and on the other hand, you have um, a lender, which is sometimes uh, an individual person. It could be a small uh, mortgage investment company or a MIC. Um, but it just means you've got a consumer who can't qualify for um, prime or near prime. And then you've got uh, a, a lender who's willing to uh, meet this individual specific need for a mortgage. So, um, yeah, a little bit complex, but really it just means someone needs a mortgage. They can't get it elsewhere and someone's willing to give them that money at, at certain rates and fees. Now, what kind of person would typically seek out a private mortgage uh, in Canada? Well, so in a way, no one, no one seeks them out. They are really, um, it's because you don't have other options. So someone who ends up with a private mortgage, um, the most common situation would be something unusual has happened in their life, um, be it job loss, uh, health issue, um, you know, something unusual and, and often, you know, not, not the best thing has happened, which means that that household can no longer qualify for anything other than a, a, a private mortgage. So um, I think that most people would not, you know, buy their first home with the plan being a, a private mortgage. Um, so these are often more you already have a mortgage, the refinance situation. So, you, you know, you bought your house a couple of years ago. Um, and at that time, you could qualify for a regular mortgage. Um, but something has happened. Maybe 
there was two incomes in your household and now you're down to one um, and you can no longer qualify for a prime mortgage. And so you're really, you know, most people getting a private mortgage would probably consider, do they sell the home or do they get a private mortgage? Um, and usually the answer to that question would be, you know, is what's happened a temporary, um, you know, obstacle or road bump that that there's a, a way to rectify it? And if it's temporary, um, then, you know, a, a private mortgage might be your best option. That's why private mortgages are often short terms or one or two or, you know, even six months or open because uh, the plan is usually to use the the private mortgage as a temporary sort of bridge loan before they can get back to um, a regular mortgage. Now, if when you evaluate your situation, if there is no realistic possibility of whatever's, you know, hurt the household finances to rectify itself, um, like, you know, using that example, if, if two jobs has gone down to one and we don't really think that we're going back to two jobs anytime soon, the more appropriate action would be to actually just to, to sell the home. So, um, Private mortgages, again, uh, typically are for temporary um, obstacles or issues that, that a household's facing. How temporary are these mortgages? How long would a typical person who uses them actually have this mortgage for? I mean, so most, most um, private mortgages would be less than two-year terms. The most common term is would be a one-year term. Um, now, at the end of that term, um, you know, you, you'd have to see whether you're actually able to make that move into, you know, a prime mortgage. Um, you know, so I, in some cases, they might say, okay, well, we need to do another one-year term before we're kind of back on our feet and things are sorted out. But yeah, they, private mortgages are certainly much more short-term in nature versus regular mortgages, which are, you know, most of them are in five-year terms. And what kind of interest rates do you see uh, private mortgages uh, carrying? Uh, what should people be aware of if they're getting, you know, if they're starting to think about whether whether this is something that they could uh, possibly do for the short term to get them to their ultimate financial goal? Yeah, so, you know, at, at the moment, um, a private mortgage would be, you know, approaching 10% or in many cases higher um, than that. So there, there's certainly many percentage points higher than, than a prime mortgage. What's, you know, a, a unique feature of private mortgages is that the, the interest rates are quite dynamic. So there's not like one set, you know, market rate for a private mortgage. Um, like there is more for prime mortgages, like prime mortgages, they, they just don't vary that much between different lenders. You know, there's there's always some lenders that are 0.1 or 0.2 better on the prime side, but on the private side, how it works is the consumer who requires that private mortgage will, you know, put together an application and, and then the private lender will look at the situation, uh, evaluate how much risk there is. And there's often risk. That's That's the nature of private lending. There's more risk than than prime lending and and then the the private lender will come up with with a rate that they feel is appropriate for them to to compensate for that risk um and and then often there's an upfront fee as well which is an unusual feature of private lending where there's you know for a prime mortgage there's um typically no fees at the beginning 
but for private mortgage, there's almost always um, a fee of, let's say, 2 or 3%, sometimes more um, at, at the beginning. And that's just a kind of an upfront cash cost in addition to the interest that you're going to pay over the life of the mortgage. Where does private lending money come from? Uh, you know, where where are individuals uh, finding people that are willing to lend them this money in a private transaction? Yeah, and so again, it's quite fragmented, but um, many mortgage brokers across Canada have a little bit of money that they'll lend out to their clients in certain situations. So it, it can often just be, you know, a mortgage broker's little private pool of money that they're willing to lend. And there's also something called a, a MIC or a Management Investment Corporation. And a MIC is a, a pool of investors that that are, are looking to invest in private mortgages. And so there's these pools of, of investors that are willing to invest in private mortgages called MICs, which are often the lender in a private mortgage situation. Are these the ads that we see on TV where they'll say, you know, if you have equity in your home that you can get a loan with us? Is, is that what you would consider private lending? Yes, that's that's definitely private lending, um, and you've really identified a a key feature of it. Um, you know, where whereas a prime mortgage relies on both equity, credit score, and you know job stability, uh, private lending is much more focused on just the equity in the home because there's often some challenges with those other two, you know, criteria that you know are typically there for a regular mortgage. Now, the data shows that, especially in Ontario, that the popularity of private lending has gone up in the last seven or eight years. Um, when would be a time that you would think, as the co-founder of RateHub, uh, that that uh, that someone should use private lending? When would be an appropriate time for someone to say, this is the right avenue for me? Yeah, I, I might just comment on the first part. Um, it's It's no coincidence that, you know, the stress test is seven or eight years old now. And so it's not a coincidence that like, the, the stress test, and, and I'm an, an advocate of the stress bus test, by the way, I think it's been a good thing, but it, you know, it does make it hard to qualify for prime mortgages. So when the stress test came out um, in 2017, uh, it did make things hard to qualify, which meant more people uh, were pushed from prime um, into, into private mortgages. Um, and again, you, uh, a private mortgage should never have been plan A. Like for example, let's say you're you're currently renting and uh, you've got some bruised credit at the moment, which doesn't allow you to qualify for a prime mortgage. The more appropriate thing to do is to put together a plan to rectify your credit issue, you know, rent for another year and then get a prime mortgage. Uh, same with income. If you know you look at how expensive homes are where you're considering purchasing. Um, and so again, because of your income to mortgage requirement ratio is not there, uh, we, we don't recommend going out and getting a private mortgage. We recommend either, you know, waiting for your income to uh, to accelerate or, you know, partnering up with someone, wait, you know, wait until you're, uh, you've got a partner to purchase the home with, you know, often a spouse. Um, so so pr uh, private lending should not be, plan a it is a you know it, it's more of an emergency measure um that is you know wh when you're trying to when you require money for a short term to uh you know bridge a gap where you've your your household's feeling financial strain but that will 
you know, alleviate itself sometime in the future, uh, private mortgage can be an excellent way to go essentially from prime private for a bit back to prime. What about if you were to buy a house that the bank simply doesn't think that the value is there, but you believe that, you know, if you renovated it and, and, and refurbished it, that it would, it would be worth something. Would that be a reason to, to, to go the private lending route because you see value in something maybe the bank doesn't and doesn't want to give you that mortgage for it? Um, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend that. Um, you know, when every, every home that's purchased across the country that requires a mortgage, uh, an appraisal is done on it. And, you know, in some cases, the, the lender can just do an electronic appraisal, which means that they can just look into their database, say, you know, we can tell that this place, you know, th this was a reasonable price to pay. Um, so almost all the time when someone has gone out and purchased a home that's, you know, on the MLS that's been publicly advertised for sale, it's very rare that an appraisal comes back soft because um, really the role of an appraisal isn't in a purchase situation is not, you know, what's the precise value of this home? Like, let's say it's sold for 500,000. The appraiser doesn't go in and say, you know what? I think this is worth 491. They don't, they don't do that. They, they say, okay, is 500 a reasonable price in today's market to pay? And as long as it is, um, then they will confirm that value and you won't have an issue getting a prime mortgage uh, from a bank. So um, that that situation where, you know, a bank's looking at something saying, you know, we're not sure about this value, it's pretty unusual. And I think it would give me pause certainly um, in wanting to buy that home if, if, if the lender's saying no. We're speaking to James Laird. He's a co-founder of Rate Hub and president of Canwise Mortgage Lending. Uh, James, uh, a final question to you. If someone is listening, they're getting into a private mortgage, what is your best advice to them, especially when it comes to the risks that we've been talking about involved with uh, private lending? Yeah, I mean, you want to understand precisely what has caused you to not qualify for a prime mortgage and have a plan to improve your household finances, improve your financial situation so that you have a, a timeline and a goal in mind for when you're going to replace that private mortgage uh, with a prime mortgage. And, you know, this is not to say that private lending is bad. It's not. It, 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 uh, plays a very important role in the mortgage landscape and private lenders, they're, they're good business people. They are, they're taking more risk and therefore they need a higher return, which is, which is appropriate. And they're, they're lending in situations when no one else will lend to that household. So, you know, oftentimes the private mortgage uh, provider is really helpful um, in, in getting a, a household through uh, some rougher times. Um, but but it is expensive, so you know have that plan in place where and 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 follow it so that you can pay less interest when you move from a private mortgage back to the prime lending space. James, thank you so much for joining us today and getting us up to date on what it means uh, to get a private mortgage and uh, why it should be, like you said many times, uh, really uh, not plan A but plan D, E, and F, really last resort if you're trying to get uh, financing for for a purchase. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Thank you.
That was co-founder of Rate Hub and president of CanWise Mortgage Lenders, James Laird. Coming up after the break, what message do retirees have for young workers? What do they wish they had done differently now that they are retired? I'm also going to weigh in on my point of view when it comes to retirement. All of that after the break. I'm Rabina Ahmed-Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed-Hawk. The best things in life are free. Recently, I was reading an article published by Rob Carrick in the Globe and Mail about the regrets that retirees have. Uh, and the lessons that they want to pass on to maybe younger workers. Uh, Some of the things they talked about, and I think this is quite obvious, a lot of older people will tell you this, not focusing on their personal health when they were younger, using their job as an excuse not to go to the gym, uh, not being able to clear their mind of stress that, you know, was created when they were working. So just being way too involved with their job, working too many hours, not planning enough for life after they leave work and retire, so not really knowing exactly what they want to do, and not being intentional about what they want in retirement. So now thinking, well, what do I do now? Because you spent your whole life working, and now that you've retired, you've got this chunk of of time that you don't know what to do with because you never really thought about what retirement would look like. I think those are really important lessons. And I think that um, anybody listening to this who is working right now should pay more attention to what they want life after 65 to look at. But this is something I I have been thinking about for a long time, and I know it's an unpopular opinion. But I really don't have any intention of retiring 100%. I think that anyone who thinks that they can just stop working and fill their day with travel and entertainment and meeting with friends and family it may be a little bit disappointed because they may find that at 65 that they still have a lot of work left in them. They still have a a lot of knowledge that they can give to uh, society. They still may want to make money. And the reality is many of us have not saved enough in order to even fund a really good retirement at the age of 65. So working beyond that age um, is going to be a reality for some uh, out of necessity not necessarily because they are bored and they don't want to stay home. But for those for that that segment of 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 Canadians who do have enough money to retire, I think that there there is something to be said about continuing to work. I'm not saying 9 to 5 Monday to Friday. Definitely not commuting into any job, but I think there's something to be said about keeping yourself busy whether it be through part-time jobs, volunteering, doing other things where you still feel like you are contributing to society. A few weeks ago, I talked about the new Netflix series about living to 100. And I talked a lot about food and how plant-based was the best way, according to this documentary, to eat if you wanted to live longer and healthier. And in many ways, it's cheaper. It is cheaper. Uh, That was my angle on it. But I also heard from that same documentary how important it is to always have a purpose when you wake up. So when I retire, if you want to call it that, or when I slow down work, I have a lot of plans. I, I know what I want to do. I want to definitely work in a garden center, 
maybe work in a wine shop. These are kind of the things that I look forward to doing if I can afford to do so with the money that I've saved during my, my full-time working years. So I think that it's important that we pay attention to these stories and really make changes in our life. But for some of us, maybe retirement 100% is not even a reality. Uh, we had a fantastic show today. I love talking about skimpflation. Look out for it, consumers, if you're out there. See if those products don't taste the same or look the same. Make sure you call that customer service line. Let them know. I think this is a time when you should be able doing it. And second, uh, private lending. You know, it's obviously a last resort option. It's expensive, comes with a lot of different fees, but... For some, it may be the only option to get onto the real estate ladder. And if you are using it, make sure you have a plan to get out of that private mortgage once that term is up in one to two years. Thank you so much for listening today to For What It's Worth. I really want to thank James Petrovic, our technical producer. Thank you, the listener. We will be back here, same time, same channel. I'm Rubina Ahmad-Hak, and this is For What It's Worth.